Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Read for you verses 14 through verse 30. Luke, chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, verse 14. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zerathah in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow, brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, I went away uh, for a few days with the leaders of Cornerstone to a staff retreat. We're gone for two nights and three days, and uh, came back on Saturday afternoon and uh, opened the door. And it's one of the joys of being a dad, my four children, including Eleanor, run run at me, nearly tackled me, screaming, uh, "Daddy, Daddy!" And uh, they're hugging my, my feet, kissing my feet. No, they're <laughs> not that extreme, but they're running at me, they're hugging me, and they're kind of crowding around me. And in that moment, I had a flashback to what it, what it was like with my dad. I remember that excitement uh, when I was young, and my dad would come home, and I would run towards the door and be so excited to have him home and to spend time with him. There was something about uh, fathers and sons. I remember being so happy just to be around him. We would go and uh, eat pancakes together early in the morning. We'd go eat uh, unhealthy food together, eat burgers and, and fries and, and just douse our food and ketchup. And I remember just being so proud of my dad. I don't know for what reason, but very proud of him and being so happy just being around him. But I also remember that changing 
sometime around junior high, late junior high, early high school, I was, um, you know, just being a, being a brat, being sinful, being rebellious, being selfish. And I think my dad, too, I think he was going through uh, his adolescence as well, <laughs> struggling through life and trying to make, make ends meet. And he began to scold me, a lot of which I deserved, and berate me and admonish and correct. Got to a point where that was just the gist of a relationship, him scolding me and yelling at me, to a point where I didn't want to be in the same room with him. I remember being in high school and dreading, like driving home, I saw his car and my heart sinking. And uh, the, the common... Uh, experience was I'd be in my living room watching TV and I would hear the keys, my dad's keys jingling in the door and him walking in and my heart would just drop. My instinct was to, I wanted to run upstairs into my room, but it was too late. He's going to walk through those doors. So I turn off the TV, I sit up in my couch, I look for a book that I could like, <laughs> look like I'm reading and hope that he was in a good mood when he walked in those doors. That was my experience all throughout high school, early college years. It was so ingrained in me that even after we got married, I distinctly remember this. We were married for a few months, and I was laying down again, you know, uh, watching TV or something, watching Lakers, and uh, I heard the keys and the front door uh, moving, and my heart, heart sank. My fear grew. I sat up my sofa and I turned off the TV, and then I realized, it's only Serene. <laughs> Why am I afraid of my wife? But that's how it was, like Pavlovian dogs, right? That's how it was, it was ingrained in me. Yeah, I, I never felt that in my life except at home and with my wife and one other place. I experienced that at church. I would go to church once in a while when I was in college to my parents, and sitting there, there was a restlessness, there was a fear, there was a dread, and a fight or flight, I wanted to, I wanted to run. I wanted to get away. Um, that's the last place I wanted to be. And uh, I think that's the experience of some of the people that are gathered together in Luke chapter 4. Maybe that's your heart condition this morning as you're gathered in church. You're here for other reasons, but in your heart, your heart is restless, your heart is anxious, your heart is maybe afraid of, of what you might hear from the Word. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, our Lord has begun His public ministry. He comes to His hometown, and as was His custom, He goes to the synagogue, and He's given the privilege to preach from a, a text in the Old Testament. And gathered in that room, that fateful morning, are two kinds of people, two groups of people. First group is uh, uh, people who consider themselves righteous. They're there every Saturday for synagogue. They're there religiously. They're committed, they're devoted, they're godly, and they're excited because the Messiah is here, and um, they have, they're, in, they're in the in-group, they're on the inside, because not only is the Messiah here, the Messiah is from their hometown. Not only are they Jews like Jesus, not only are they religious and moral people, the Messiah is from their hometown. He has come home to, to begin his public ministry. 
So they're excited and they can't wait to hear Jesus. They're expecting all these blessings from him. And then there's a second group of people. They're, they're, they're surprised to be in the synagogue on this day because they're only here because they've heard of this man from their hometown who's going around Israel performing miracles. Right? He's become this, there's a notoriety about him. So they're here because Jesus is here. But this is the last place they want to be. Right? They were not religious. They're not godly, devoted in any sense of the word. Uh, they're... Hearts have been rebellious towards God and uh, their hearts are restless as they wait to hear what Jesus would have to say. The scroll was given to the Lord. All eyes are fixed on him. He deliberately goes to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And the text begins with these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And because he has selected this passage of scripture, everyone knows that this is intentional, that Jesus is talking about himself, and that he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, not anointed in a literal sense of oil being placed on him and, and, and uh, designating him as a, as a Messiah, but he says, the Holy Spirit has anointed me, and it's clear that he's anointed me because of the miracles that I am performing all around Israel. That this is not possible apart from God and His Holy Spirit being upon me. That's what Nicodemus said in John 3. The teacher of Israel said, We know you're from God. Because no one could perform these miracles unless God had sent you. John 5.36 Jesus said, I know the Baptist, John the Baptist testified of me, but I have a greater testimony than even John the Baptist. Testimony of all my miracles. John 7.31, the people said, He must be the Christ. He must be the Messiah. Because can anyone else do more miracles than this man? John 9.30, the man who was cured of blindness. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I was blind, but now I see. Surely he is from God. Because only a man sent by God could perform such a miracle. His uh, performance of all these gifts, uh, miracles were uh, valid, valid validations, verifications that he was actually the Messiah, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. The gifts weren't the miracles. The miracles were just uh, a way of, of signs pointing to his identity. The gifts that he brought with him were so much more glorious, so much more precious than these physical healings. Our Lord Jesus brought with him five blessings to his people, to God's people. And what's surprising is uh, God's people are not noted by their geography, their ethnicity. God's people aren't set apart by their commitment to religious rites or practices. He brought five blessings to people who manifested distinct internal spiritual heart qualities. To these people, he brought them God's divine gifts. Verse 18, 
He came to the poor. Greek word, tukos. The poor. It's from a verb meaning to shrink, cower, or cringe, as beggars often did in that day and today as well. Classical Greek used that word to refer to a person reduced to total destitution. It was a picture of a person crouching in the corner begging for money, begging for food. He held out one hand begging for something, and with the other he would hide his face. The Lord here is not talking about the condition of the wallet, but the condition of the heart, spiritually poor. The whole context points to that. The Lord has come for those who are poor in spirit, those who are spiritually destitute, to those who are spiritually humble. So in that group, uh, Luke 4, and here this morning, and Juliet set me up perfectly with her testimony. There are two kinds of people. The first is a spiritually proud They're not spiritually poor. They're spiritually proud. They look at themselves in the mirror of God's word. And just like so many guys do physically, they say, wow, I look good. They see all that is right with themselves. They look at the scriptures and they are spiritually boasting. There is no trembling before the word of God. There is boasting before the word of God. It's like that Pharisee in Luke 18. They say, and they rattle off their accomplishments, their spiritual achievements their spiritual resume, and they say, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs, I don't watch those movies, I don't curse, right? I don't cheat, I don't steal, I don't lie. Right? In fact, not only do I not do those things, these are the things that I do. And they have a list, a laundry list of their spiritual accomplishments in their lives. Well, Christ didn't come for them. Christ came for the second group. They're spiritually humble because when they see themselves at the mirror of God's perfect law, they see their own imperfections. Before God's perfect law that magnifies and reveals and exposes, they see their faults, their sins, their transgressions. So they're not huffing and puffing about Tiger Woods, right? Or Mark Sanford or Elliot Spitzer. No, their hearts are huffing and puffing about themselves. They are terrified by what they see. They see all the evil in their hearts. And therefore, they are too cost in spirit. They recognize their own spiritual poverty apart from God. They see themselves as they are, as lost, hopeless, and helpless. They recognize their total spiritual destitution and their complete dependence upon God. They perceive rightly that they have no saving resources in themselves. And the only thing they can do is beg God for mercy. Beg God for grace. They know they have no spiritual merit. They can earn no spiritual reward. Their pride is gone. Self-assurance is gone. They stand empty-handed before God. Their recognition of poverty is not mere pretense. It's not performance. It's not an act on Sundays. It is not an act, it's a reality. It is true humility, not mock humility. They are poor. And Jesus says, I've come for you, and I've come to give you good news. I've given you joyful, glad tidings. 
It's not good. I've, I've not come to you with, a, with more laws, right? You know, you're down your luck, right? Let me give you 10 ways to get out of poverty, right? Let me give you 10 rules that if you obey these rules, you'll recover spiritually and have a good standing before God. That's all religions of the world. That is not good news, right? That is awful news. Every religion in the world, every day, you just grow worse, right? The burden is heavier. The guilt just grows. You feel more and more oppressed. Christianity is the only faith where we have the gospel. And it is not due, but it is done. The message is a declaration. Our Lord, the warrior, has come. And he is victorious. He has finished the work. And victory is ours. Now we can rest, we can rejoice, we can, we can celebrate because He has done what no man could do. He has uh, paid our debt. He has ransomed us. He has atoned us for our sins. He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Though He was rich, He became poor so that we might be spiritually rich and that can never be taken away. That's the first gift. He brought good news. Secondly, he has, verse 18, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives. Now, Jesus talked about this in John 8, 32 to 38. He talked about, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And the Jews were perplexed. Freedom? What are you talking about? We are children of Abraham. We're not slaves. We are free men. So there are people, they don't see their bondage. They don't see their slavery. They see Christians as those who are enslaved. And they see themselves living in the world, enjoying life as true freedom. And what chains? What imprisonment? What slavery? I have no idea what you're talking about. To those who are blind to their own bondage, Christ did not come for them. Christ came for those who see their bondage. And yes, there is, you know, clear-cut bondage that everyone sees. And those people that are addicted to drugs or alcohol, right, they're addicted to all these things, and it's clearly seen their lives are decimated. Right? You can see it in their relationships, see it in their health. They're in slavery. But there is also slavery that is far more cruel, far more evil and insidious. A slavery to things that are good. Slavery to things that are perceived as moral things, righteous things. If God gives us grace, and as God gives you grace, you will see how you are a slave as well. I am a slave as well. How we are enslaved to, our hearts are tied to, our hearts are addicted to, uh, relationships, to success, to children, to our economy, to our business, to our bank account, to even ministry. Our hearts are tied to these things. Our emotional well-being is tied to these things. Uh, Mary Bell, uh, a counselor, she said this. She said, achievement is the alcohol of our time. 
These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. You're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project and you feel great. That feeling doesn't last forever. So you slide back to normal. But you love that feeling of euphoria, so you've got to do it again. The problem is you can't stay on that high. Say you're working on a deal and it doesn't get approved. Your self-esteem is on the line because you've been gathering your self-worth externally. Eventually, in the cycle, you drop the pain level more and more often. The highs don't seem quite so high. You may win a deal that's even bigger than the one that got away, but somehow that deal doesn't take you to euphoria. Next time, you don't even get back to normal because you're so desperate about clinching that next deal. An achievement addict is no different from any other kind of addict. So all of us at our heart level, we are slaves to something in this world. It has taken over our hearts and our our joy, our peace, our contentment, our gratitude, our self-image is tied to something in this world. And so once we once enjoyed, we can't enjoy any longer because it owns us. Jesus says, I've come to set you free. How does he do that? When we prize Christ, when we trust in the Lord, when we believe in the cross, when we see Christ as he is, he liberates us. He sets us free. Not just from these things, but sets us free to enjoy these things. That's why Christians... We can truly apply 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever we do, eat or drink, we can do it for the glory of God. We can truly enjoy every gift that God has given to us because Christ is our first and foremost. Because we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we can enjoy every gift that He has given to us. So as Christians, we can enjoy our families, we can enjoy our jobs, we can enjoy food, We could enjoy sports because we put Christ as first. I I read a while ago how um, last year's playoffs, Jerry West couldn't watch. I got to stick the Lakers illustration in there somehow. Jerry West, he couldn't watch the playoffs because he's so devoted to the Lakers. He loves the Lakers so much that he couldn't bear watching them lose. He couldn't watch watch them play. He can only find out the results afterwards. That's what happens when you prize anything apart from Christ. Whether it's your family, whether it's your work, whether it's your relationships, or anything in the world, you put that first and you're enslaved. You can't even enjoy it. You're an addict. But if you enjoy put Christ first, he sets you free to enjoy these things. Because Christ is first and foremost. Thirdly, to those who are blind, He have brought them recovery of sight. And again, it's a spiritual blindness, not physical blindness. The curing, He cured the blind. He gave recovery of sight. Not because that was the gift, but because that performance of that gift was conforming, confirming to everyone that He is the Messiah. And that he has come for true recovery. That there are people who are blind to their sins. 
and blind to their sin and their righteousness. Blind that they were um, going astray from God through their sin and through their righteousness. The Lord hath come to give them sight. The fourth one is he gave, he came to set liberty to those who are oppressed. Those who are oppressed. It means those who are pressed down. Those heart, whose hearts are pressed or bruised by the consciousness of sin. They're oppressed by guilt, shame, and the burden of sin. And they're oppressed by Satan, who is the accuser. They're constantly and relentlessly being accused and condemned by, condemned by Satan. They're experiencing spiritual to- torture. And Christ has come to set them free. Christ has come to set them free. He has come to uh, unburden us. Lift that burden. I heard of a church where the pastor will not preach on sin because he doesn't want to burden people. And I don't understand that. You think people are already burdened by a bad economy, difficulty with family and relationships in the world. I don't want to come and preach against sin because that will just add to their burden. Doesn't he realize sin is the burden. All the other burdens we can deal with. What's the big deal economy? What's the big deal with hardships of life? Those things we can bear under. But the guilt and shame of sin is something that we cannot bear under. And There's nothing we can do to unload ourselves of that burden. Only Christ can do this. And that's what Christ has come to do. He has come to set them at liberty, to release them, to free them from this debt, this burden that they, they carry on their backs because of, their, of, of sin. And the final one is verse 19. He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has come to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And that year is Jubilee. So every seventh day is a Sabbath. They would rest. Every seventh year is the Sabbath year. They would have a bigger party, a greater rest. Every 50th year, 7 times 7, 49, on the 50th year is the year of Jubilee. It is Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, and your birthday times 100. It is that single year where all debts are canceled. Right? All your debts are canceled. Any land that you lost through debt is returned to you. Any mortgage that you have left remaining on your, on your land is ripped up. And you start at zero. Right? Your bank account goes back. Your credit card debts are canceled. You're restored completely. And for that whole year... All you do is like a year off from work, right? A year off from laboring. You rejoice. You open up the storehouses and you celebrate. You sing. You worship. You fellowship. And you give thanks to God. It's a year of, a whole year of jubilee, a whole year of rest. Recorded, commanded to us in Leviticus 25. And Jesus says, I have come to 
to inaugurate that year. Not physical rest, not physical celebration, not physical canceling of debt, but the spiritual rest, spiritual celebration, and the spiritual canceling of debts. All eyes are on Him. Every eye is fixed on Christ. All is quiet. Verse 21, he begins to say to them, verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's not talking about the past. He's not expositing Old Testament scripture. He's saying, this is the reality right now, this moment. I have come for this purpose. He points to himself. It says, today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing an unequivocal declaration that He is the promised Messiah prophesied by all the Old Testament prophets and by Isaiah himself. Now, an uproar uh, began in the congregation. A great stir waved through the crowds. There were people who were speaking well of him, marveling at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And others were saying, is not this Joseph's son? Their biases, their prejudices were coming out. How can he be the Messiah? We saw him. We know his dad. We saw him grow up. We saw him running around, like playing in our neighborhood. How can he be the Messiah? They wanted more proofs. They wanted... Uh, verification that, that he was the Messiah. They wanted him to perform miracles. Satisfy their curiosity. Verse 23, you will quote me this proverb position here yourself. What you have done in other, other towns, perform these miracles here. And uh, this is uh, he's something that gets them, that roused them up. It causes them to be so angry. They want to murder him. They want to, they'll kill him. He tells them the time of Elijah when the heavens were, were shut up. There was a famine in the land. Elijah was sent not to any widow in Israel, but he went to a widow in Sidon to serve her. In the time of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel, but he went to no leper in Israel. He went to a, a Syrian a non-Jew, and healed him. Why? Because of unbelief. During Elijah's time, there was no one in Israel who believed God, except this widow who was a foreigner. During Elijah's time, there were all these lepers, and they were doing all these religious works, but no one trusted in God, except for Naaman. So Elisha went there. Jesus was saying, I am not uh, deceived by your external righteousness. I will not perform any miracles here because of unbelief. All their righteous deeds, all their professions of faith was motivated not by faith, not by trust, not by dependence, but it's motivated by pride and ego and self-interest. 
It was not true faith. Matthew 13, 58 affirms this. He did not do many works there because of their unbelief. Mark 6, 2 through 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. He was shocked at their unbelief. The people of Nazareth, they were furious. They were filled with wrath. To think that they were worse than Phoenician widows and Syrian lepers, their wrath knew no bounds. The Lord exposed, exposed them, revealed that their bankruptcy of faith, that they were spiritual beggars. Though they were outwardly proud, they were beggars. And when they were exposed, the house of prayer became a house of violence and rioting. They rushed upon the speaker. They grabbed him, drove him out of the town toward a cliff. With blind rage, discounting any rule of law, they declared he is a false prophet, intending to hurl him down and kill him. But verse 30, it was not his time. He walked right through them. I want you to note that those who want to kill him, that those who are angry, filled with wrath, were not the rebels, were not the irreligious. They were the prostitutes, tax collectors, drunkards, I believe they were the ones who were marveling at the gracious words that were coming from Christ. They were the ones who were surprised by the Lord's kindness, gentleness, humility, and love. They had a heart where they wanted to run away. Their hearts were afraid to hear what God's Messiah would say to them. And they were ready for rebuke, ready for judgment and condemnation. But instead, they received Mercy and grace. He spoke of spiritual riches. He spoke of gaining sight. He spoke of freedom from enslavement to sin. He spoke of being released from oppression of guilt and shame of sin. He spoke of celebration, rest and worship and of of being received by God. They loved Christ. Not just here, but throughout the Gospels. They ran towards Jesus. They didn't run away from Jesus. They flocked to Jesus. But those who are righteous in their own sight, those who are walking with a swagger, boasting of themselves, they were offended by Jesus. They were the ones who were so enraged, they wanted to murder Christ. They didn't want to hear another word from this from this man, they wanted to murder him. Now what about us? Do we dare point our fingers at these religious people and say we are better? We betray God's word and we betray the doctrines of grace if we do that. We battle idols of self in our hearts. We exalt ourselves as well. There is pride that is out of control in our hearts. Our default setting is is always boasting in ourselves, 
relying on our own righteousness, basing our relationship with God based on our works instead of grace. And when we hear grace, our natural response is one of defiance. It's one of anger. It's one of where we want to boast of ourselves. And we want to stand before God according to what we have done. The gospel says that the only way we can have a relationship with God is by grace. The only basis upon which we can approach God is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. All other way, all other way leads us astray. So Jesus calls, called them and he calls us. Calls us trust, calls us to believe, calls us to listen and rely and believe in Christ. What is your heart state this morning? What is the state of your heart? Is there? Is it either a fight or flight? Is there a heart of a, or you want to fight because you're enraged, because you're boasting in your righteousness. You're relying on your works. Right? You're relying on your good deeds. Your heart is full of self and full of personal achievements. And so you're raging at the gospel. Or your heart is defeated by sin and you can't wait till the service is over. As soon as the service is over, you want to walk out, run out those doors, be in your car, Blast some music and forget this ever happened. Because your heart's so restless, so filled with guilt and shame of sin. And you think God is ready to pounce on you. Ready to correct you and denounce you. Instead of these two ways, the gospel says, steady your heart and listen to Christ's message of the gospel. And and see what he has brought with him. He has brought these gifts to give to you if you would but humble yourself and trust in Him. Believe in Him and believe in the cross. Uh, May this season um, be a season of receiving. Be a time when we receive all that God has for us through Christ and without shame without any guilt, we just receive and receive and receive by faith because that glorifies God. That glorifies God's only Son. Just where you are with your Bibles open, pen in hand, if you would just bow and close your eyes. Father, we are humbled that you would come for us. Lord, we we do not belong here. We should be, we are outcasts, Lord, because of our false righteousness or because of our overt rebellion. We have no standing before you. We, have, we are unworthy to be in your presence. But God, it's amazing to us to discover in the Gospels that you have come for us. You have sought us out. And with eyes of love, grace, and mercy, you have found us and you brought with us these gifts, gifts of forgiveness, 
Lord, gifts of freedom. Lord, gifts of setting us free from the bondage of sin and the burden of, of, of guilt of sin. And Lord, you have brought to us the gift of jubilee where all our debts are canceled and we are restored to you. Oh God, we pray that though our faith is small, you'll grant to us help in our faith to trust in you and to receive all these gifts by faith. And so that in our hearts, we would prize you utmost, that you would be our true object of our worship and adoration on this day. Pay all this in your name. Amen.